Welcome back to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the host of the next hour of programming on Energy Voices. This month, we're going to take a bit of a different spin and explore some non-traditional aspects of the energy industry. First, we're going to dive into the humanities of energy. Then we're going to switch gears and talk about the health effects of climate change and energy in general. Lastly, we're going to finish off the show with a long-form interview and discussion about geothermal energy, its current technology, and future potential. Support for Energy Voices is provided by Bullfrog Power and their brand new Student Life Initiative. If you're a student that's looking to find a way to add green energy to the grid as a result of your activities, please make sure to visit studentlife.bullfrogpower.com. Stay tuned in January for a special blog post covering the partnership between Student Energy and Bullfrog Power on Energy Voices and their Student Life Initiative. We've got an action-packed show, so to kick things off, we've got Kaylee Taylor discussing humanities in energy. Hi everyone, Kaylee Taylor, Executive Director of Student Energy here. I'm very excited to have Imra Zeman in the studio. Imra is a professor at the University of Alberta who uh, studies English, film studies, and sociology, and teaches on those topics, um, and has a really interesting connection to energy. He is advocating for uh, the inclusion of energy humanities in the discussion. And as many of you know, energy-based careers are usually thought of as engineering, science, technology, maybe finance and business. So this really attracted to us and and we were really curious about the idea of energy humanities. So welcome to the studio, Imra. Thanks for being here with us today. Tell us what are energy humanities? Thanks very much for the invite. So I guess I should start by saying I'm not sure there's careers yet in energy humanities. (laughs) Um, What energy humanities are, are a, a kind of a desire by myself and some other colleagues around the world um, to insist on the necessity of studying energy from all perspectives. So um, especially, I would say, especially from the humanities and social sciences, which is an area that has not looked at energy as much as it should. The impetus for this, I've I've been working on energy-related issues for the past decade or so. And the real impetus for this, though, comes out of a gap or a lack or a kind of a missing element of between knowledge and action when it comes to addressing climate change. Several scientists now for actually a very, very long time, I would say a decade or even longer, have been saying that all of the, all of the information and all of the knowledge that we need about climate change is, is at our fingertips. We, there's nothing more to discover. We know that we're having an impact on the, on the climate. We know a lot of that has to do with the kinds of energy we use and the, the amount of energy we use. Um, and yet all of that knowledge hasn't translated into any kind of action. What's missing, say several scientists, including Mike Holm, one of the uh, scientists who has most um, frequently cited, uh, a top 10 citation scientist in the world today, is an attention to um, all of those elements that the humanities pay attention to, which are our cultural values, our expectations, our hopes, our anxieties, our sense of dependencies, how we live out our everyday lives, what we do with them, how we imagine they should unfold, our ideas and ideals of progress, 
our, our insistence on growth and so on. All of those kinds of things are the, the types of issues that the humanities, those people doing research in the humanities, uh, those people doing research in the social sciences have been addressing all along. But what they haven't been doing is really looking at it in terms of energy specifically. So to begin with, energy humanities is kind of a call to academics and to students, and, and then also kind of back to scientists and the government, um, that this is where we need to put all of our, or much of our energies right now if we're going to address climate change. Interesting. You know, we talk about that a lot at our events and, and in our discussions. Uh, we kind of call it the humanizing energy yeah. perspective, looking at it from what energy gives us and, and why some of the values and judgments that we embed in it are the way that they are, which translate to behavior, of course. Yeah. So what tipped this off in your mind? What got sure. you interested in energy? Uh, that's a long story, uh, which I won't go into, but when I, I'm relatively new at the University of Alberta, I came there from McMaster University in 2009. And when I arrived, um, in Alberta, um, I'm someone who pays attention a lot to the environment that they're in, in, in my studies. And it seemed to me coming to Alberta that, especially as a Canada research chair in cultural studies, I couldn't but pay attention to the way in which oil, uh, and energy was reshaping this province. So... You well know, uh, and your listeners well know, that um, Alberta has always been an energy-producing province, or has for a long time. But it's really since the price of energy went to its current levels, at, as of about 2000, that it became feasible for certain kinds of resources to be exploited, that is the oil sands, um, and which changed the kind of di the dynamic of energy in Alberta and what it means for the, for the province and what it means for life in the province. So coming back here, in 2009, it's something that I wanted to focus on. And when I arrived uh, with some other colleagues, uh, we put together something called Petrocultures, which is a research group um, that organizes and kind of ag advocates, I guess, on behalf of, the, of research and energy in relation to the humanities. Um, from that initial kind of beginning points of Petrocultures, um, this might not be something that's on the horizon of a lot of students, but... Uh, there has been an incredible expansion of interest in studying energy and its uh, outcomes and consequences um, across uh, North America, certainly, but also across Europe. So more historians are looking at the history of energy, more sociologists are looking at the, the values that we embed in energy, and um, people in the humanities in a very, very kind of um, blunt way, like English professors are starting to pay attention to the ways in which energy is kind of an, has been an unconscious in the arts culture, um, arts and culture, and is something that needs to be looked at more seriously. Interesting. And so coming from that background to where you are now and making a call to action that we need to start considering the human side of energy and the humanities within yeah. that what what are the takeaways? What are the things you're finding? What are you hoping uh, to push with that, that agenda? Right. Well, I would say the first the first thing I want to insist on before I tell you about takeaways is that we're uh, everything we think of as modernity uh, is actually an oil modernity or an energy modernity in the deepest way possible, and it's not something that we tend to really understand or pay attention to. In 1850. Um, for instance, still most of the work that was carried out um, in the world was done by animals. Um, very little was done by other forms of energy, except human energy, water to some degree, wind to some degree, wood to some degree. A, a century later, 
not already by 1950, so I'm not even talking about the present, 90.8% um, of the, the work was done by, by fossil fuels. So that is an incredible transformation of society that, that, has, that I don't think we really pay much attention to. We don't really understand it. We don't really know what capacities it's given us. We don't pay very much attention to the ideals it has filled us with, especially ideas around mobility. Um, I mean, I've just flown in, um, and I was telling you I just flew to China. It seems like this is now par for the course, um, accepted that we can go wherever we want. We certainly couldn't do that in 1850 and even not in 1950. And my anxiety about attempting to deal with climate change without attending to the types of issues that come up in energy humanities is that we'll never get to where we want to be. So if mobility is a value that is consequent and attendant with um, the expansion of energy regimes in our society, what is it that we need to do to manage those, those expectations and values? I think to date, these are the kind of takeaways now I'll say, I think to date, a lot of the environmental movement has been one that is talking about um, cutting back a certain kind of idea of scarcity, a certain kind of um, almost like wearing of sackcloths so that we are, we're somehow ethically and morally now um, superior. Those of us who have made this de decision and uh, as opposed to kind of abundant and, ex and expelling lots and lots of energy. I just don't think this is an adequate uh, way of addressing our current energy, energy issues and also climate change. It's simply the, the values that we're kind of fighting against are much too embedded in the kind of creatures we are. Again, I'll say it, we're oil creatures. We're, we're part of an oil modernity. And so the way to try to address um, the looming crises and problems that, may, uh, that are on the horizon, that are already here, uh, has to be one in which we try to work with and understand the degree to which we are, those values are part of what we are, mm -hmm. as opposed to just trying to negate them. The negation makes some of us really happy. We feel like we're superior to others, perhaps. It makes us feel that we've done something, but it's not something that's structurally, that, that does much work structurally. Uh, and it's not something that is very, that's, that, I mean, politically, it's not a, a move that is one that's likely to find a lot of adherence. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when we come to them thinking, I mean, I just came from China in part because I was talking about these issues with Chinese academics and the divide between global north and south around energy use is still incredibly huge. Um, and what the global south wants in some ways more than anything is to be able to participate in that energy modernity that we've already participated in. So the idea that we would say to them, Turns out it, you guys came too late to the party. You're not going to be able to participate in those ideas of those those fantasies and ideals of mobility that we've had or perpetual growth that we've we've had. Um, it, you just have to kind of suck it up and it's too bad. It's just an inadequate political response. So, I mean, I guess what those of us who are doing work in this area, and I can kind of tell you some specifics if you want, um, are trying to figure out right now how it is that the types of type of research we've always been doing on representation, on um, social ideals and fantasies, how understanding the connection of those to energy might give us a better platform on which to carry out environmental action, carry out environmental um, pedagogy, and so on. Interesting. You kind of read my mind there. I was going to ask you about that developed, developing world 
tension yeah. because that's something that we see a lot doing events all over the world. I mean, I was just in Cape Town running an event and uh, we did an energy efficiency panel and the big joke was, how are you efficient with something you don't have? You know, <laughs> so so this is this is the the actual debate. There are cultures striving to have what we have and it is an, an oil modernity. So we have to pull that, unpack that a little bit. So you mentioned that there are some specific actions going on. Are they... Um, mostly focused on the developed world and looking at mm. that kind of piece, um, how it's built into our current culture, or is it yeah. looking at the dynamic between the, in the global system? I would say that there's always an attention to the global system, but what's been happening so far in this short-lived um, uh, energy humanities movement it has been an attention more to the to what's happened in the global north, and is trying to uncover. Um, the way in which it is uh, energy is part of our entire history and our entire sense of ourselves. Um, I think that's just kind of a, a natural first move in a sense, but there's definitely now much more attention to the, the I guess, the, the, the real intellectual and political problem of trying to include the global South. Um, it seems, again, I'll, I'll, I'll say it's, it seems inadequate to deny an oil modernity to uh, much of the world when we've participated in its in its dynamism, in its fantasy, in this fantasy of modernity that we've had, uh, that's so appealing and that's so so um, that's so wonderful in some ways. Or I, I'm not even sure if it's a choice. It's just we are those kind of creatures. Um, I see it very powerfully in the places I visit routinely, including China, that that sense of what they'd like to be as subjects is strongly there. And I would make I would say it's less consumerism than having the kinds of uh, freedoms that having having access especially to petroleum um, gives you. So it means you can go wherever you want. It means you can ship in goods through container shipping. It means that um, you potentially have fantasies of a certain kind of um, relaxation of visiting other countries you have ideas about what kind of food is available to you and so on so i don't i find right now that this is a looming uh tension that is will be uh, a key one for the next decade you know, two decades three decades um just to kind of highlight highlight where we are with this um there have been recent expansions to the un um human rights, um, what is it called? It's a human rights act. And recently in 2010, um, the right to, to water, to fresh, clean water was added to it. It was the first time something material was added to this human rights, what is it called? It's a human rights code anyway, mm -hmm. uh, that was first announced in 1954. And that was really interesting. It was to kind of say that you, it, what we consider to be to have a, a, a full human life requires that people have access to water. It's not enough that you live in a situation where the state doesn't uh, break the law um, um, and for no reason at all um, put you in prison. Um, there's these material things that have to be part of it as well. Anyway, there's a, a move now, a strong move to include energy as one of these rights. But it's a very, very tricky one um, because the United Nations is well aware that simply saying everyone should have a right to energy um, is seems off key at this current moment, given the consequences of energy. 
especially in the developing world. Um, so the, uh, the, the phrase that is being bandied about to include is that everybody has a right to sustainable energy. And that sounds great, but it's also a little bit of a bait and switch. It's making it sound uh, good without really paying attention to probably this interim period where if you want people to have right to energy, which I think is legitimate, they're going to use it in terms of they're going to use coal and they're going to mm-hmm. use oil and they're going to use nuclear energy perhaps. Um, but there's that sense of a right to energy being part of oil modernity, that very powerful sense that we have, again, as subjects. And I would say whether we're in the global north or global south, we have that sensation that is, again, the type of thing that we want to um, try to make sense of, uh, try to look at how it developed, try to look at its, um, try to pry out its uh, particularities so that we might have some sense of how to react to it, other than to say, again, well, we shouldn't be like that. Right. Yeah. Because we are. Because <laughs> we, we are. are. Like that, yeah. Well, we are, and we are that way, and it, it we are that way um, not individually, or we are that way not ethically. We are that way structurally. We are that way socially. Um, I think one of the big, big limits of current um, kind of dominant environmental practice is to in, kind of insist on at, at at the end, in the end, that it's a, an individual choice. It's kind of this individuated um, sensibility that's again a, in its own way a consumerist one, um, as opposed to doing what I mean to be honest, what a lot of other environmentalists are doing, which is saying it's a system effect, it's an infrastructural effect, it's a social effect, and we have to think about it at that level. However, we do. Interesting. Um, so there's clearly a lot to unpack here. Is there a place where students can go to learn a little bit more about this or a book or some sort of sure. resource that, that they might look to further their knowledge on yeah. the kind of energy humanities movement? Well, if they want to get a very quick um, read on what I mean by energy humanities, they can go to universityaffairs.ca, which is... Uh, kind of the standard bearer of academic um, activity in Canada. And they can look for an op-ed piece that I authored, co-authored with a colleague in March of this year. They can go to petrocultures.com and see the kind of work that we're doing there. Um, but what, what I would recommend a book that they should really pick up, which is a fascinating one by Timothy Mitchell called Carbon Democracy, where Mitchell re-narrates um, our sense and sensibility around democracy from about the eight from about the 1850s, so just prior to the discovery of oil um, in its modern form, he re-narrates the story of democracy in relationship to energy, and he as a, he's a historian, he has a very very strong he makes a very, very strong claim that our beliefs in democracy, our, our ideals of democracy are linked to energy in ways that we don't know. And if we are going to move beyond our reliance on fossil fuels in particular, it will have to come with a very, very different sensibility of democracy than the one that we've developed to date. Um, and he also indicate he also says in this uh, book, or he also argues, I think, quite persuasively, that some of the ideas that we have about mass action um, are 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 a little bit outdated, the, the kind of the street action, um, because he sees it as as the outgrowth of a very specific kind of energy source, uh, which is coal. 
So when you had coal as a dominant energy source, it was very easy for workers to to block it to the rest of society. They simply they didn't they didn't work uh, in the mine, or all they all they had to do was block a single railway line, and suddenly coal couldn't get to the city and couldn't get to the factories. And it was a very very effective kind of mass action. And and uh, one of his arguments is that we continue this kind of mass action, even though it's in a really different setting. We live in a fossil fuel society instead of a coal based one. And it's impossible to shut it down in the same way that, that uh, miners once did. He's not saying, of course, that we shouldn't like, go and protest things, but he's kind of drawing attention to the way in which energy does shape our sensibilities, our sense and sensibility of democracy, and also maybe uh, how we react to uh, regimes uh, and of politics and energy that we don't like. Interesting. So we will put up all those resources on our blog with this episode so that people can access them easily and any other resources you feel uh, students should have a look at. But thank you so much for being here and giving us a completely new perspective on on a different side of energy from, from the typical. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for inviting me. Energy Voices, we have a long-term student energy member, Ashley Polipshin, who's currently studying at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Ashley's a master's student who's studying sustainable development and innovation and is focused on climate change, energy, and human health. So welcome to the show, Ashley. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. Yeah. So the, the part that I love about introducing your title is that last piece, human health. We, we talk a lot about climate change and, and energy, and, and those are two very obviously linked things. Um, but your focus is around the, the relation to human health. So maybe give us sort of the quick overview on, on why are you focusing on, on health when we're talking about things like climate change and greenhouse gas emissions? Those don't at first glance seem like related topics. Yeah, definitely. Um, so kind of why I'm interested in health and specifically within climate change and energy is the interesting interesting thing about health is it permeates every single sector of society, whether people realize it or not. There are the more obvious ones related to, say, food and agriculture. Um, but when it comes to topics like trade or um, climate change, as we've been talking about, or energy, um, those correlations and those linkages are, are just being made. And uh, we're receiving more and more research and more data on this correlation. And it's actually a very strong relationship um, that actually health does have a really big impact um, on a very individual level all the way to the global level uh, for the health of everyone on this planet. It doesn't matter um, who you are, what class you come from. Um, you are impacted by health, and what's going on in our current climate change situation will have an impact on your health in one way or another, and it'll affect different individuals, different countries, and different regions in different ways, which makes it all the more complex, but all the more reason to have a very um, concrete and uh, progressive discussion on how we will tackle this. And what are some of those direct health uh, impacts that you talk about. So either on the micro or the macro level, what are some of the health impacts we're seeing or, or that we expect to see in relation to climate change? Yeah. Um, so there's definitely uh, two two sides to the sword on this one. Um, first, looking at developed countries. 
um, are countries that are very reliant on uh, automobiles for transport, whether that's um, within commercial or just individuals using it, um, the carbon emissions and the impact that is having um, on the ozone layer in addition to actually uh, air pollution. Um, so we can see not only in the United States, we can see in China, um, there are direct correlations between increases in childhood asthma as a direct correlation to air pollution, uh, increases in uh, respiratory cancers. Um, at the same time, um, we're also seeing um, in developing countries issues uh, from health more so on um, impacts of extreme weather. So, for example, we're seeing tsunamis or um, things like that that are hitting Southeast Asia. And what's happening is there isn't the capacity or the infrastructure in place for the days after for cleanup, for how to move stagnant water away. Uh, the problem in these areas is uh, increased uh, rise of malaria um, due to the stagnant water. You also have countries like India where there is no uh, sanitary uh, systems in place. And if you're throwing a lot more water on top of that, um, that's going to permeate a lot of areas, not only for drinking water, but that's also going to impact the food and agriculture sectors. At the same time, that's also going to impact uh, finance as well as the ability to trade. If you lose all your crops um, because they're unsuitable to, to sell or to be uh, used for the farm animals, any of these things, that's a huge economic burden. And so that's kind of the other linkage is linking health and economics. Um, as well. That's, it's fascinating to hear you take such a systems level approach to not only the energy system and climate change, but health and economics and trade and travel that uh, I think we're starting to see more and more. We've, we've always known that it, we're in an incredibly globalized world, but that uh, to really see the, the dynamics at play about how a tsunami affects um, crop growing or how that affects the spread of malaria is, is something that I don't think that we've spent a lot of time researching. And so um, I, I'd love to hear from you sort of what were some of the what are some of the foundations of this field of study? This isn't something that I think we've we've had a huge body of research or work done on globally. So why why are the the health impacts of energy and climate change now being researched and and what has the field been looking at before now? Yeah, um, so typically in the past, it's been a lot of focus on greenhouse gas emissions, uh, carbon emissions, transport. But now we're taking that a step further. So what current research is taking this micro approach of, okay, automobiles, all right, we need to decrease their emissions or um, we need to decrease air pollution by um, investing in more clean tech energy as opposed to being so fossil fuel dependent. But now the discussion has changed to, all right, well, let's look bigger. Let's look at how urban spaces are being planned. Let's look at how we can make our future cities more livable um, and decrease the amount of stress, both felt physically and emotionally and mentally. Um, so you have to kind of address all these in sort of a dynamic package, um, so to say. And the other thing is, at the same time, while all this is going on, um, there's been a lot of talk about what is going to happen in the coming years whether that's in 2030 and 2050, but some people have been 
um, talking about how 2030 is kind of going to be this uh, perfect storm. And so I have a quote here by John Bennington, and he says, it is predicted that by 2030, the world will need to produce around 50 cents more food and energy together with 30 cents more fresh water while mitigating and adapting to climate change. This threatens to create a perfect storm of global events. There's not going to be a complete collapse, but things will start to get really worrying if we don't tackle these problems. So I think this kind of is a really nice sum up. As At the same time, if you uh, look at the main points of food, energy, water, what's happening with our system and climate change, the underlying theme within all of these is health. When you think about food, you need to take care of your body. Um, you need food to live. All societies need food as well as all the animals on the planet. Same thing with water. Everyone needs clean water. Um, everyone needs access to energy to be able to uh, go to work, to, to live. So these three, this nexus of these three things um, are being impacted by climate change. At the same time, health has an underlying role or a foundation in all of these subtopics. And so um, I think what a lot of research is trying to do today is establish those linkages and make people realize um, that there is this underlying health factor. Mm. And... and I mean, when we talk about food or water or energy, we, we shouldn't forget to include health into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Health is something that, you know, we all hold near and dear to our hearts because it is our, our own livelihood yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I, th- I think, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that the thing that I, I love about that and the fact that this is being brought into the climate change conversation is the historical precedence that even when you look back to sort of the significant global action that was taken on closing the hole in the ozone layer, we didn't take action on the ozone layer because we hated CFCs. We didn't hate chlorofluorocarbons. It's that we hated skin cancer and we hated the Mm -hmm. the concept that uh, our kids were being exposed to uh, unnecessary amounts of um, solar radiation because there was this hole in the ozone layer. And, and that was really a precursor, this very individualistic approach to protecting one's own health um, was what limited the, the byproduct that was causing the hole in the ozone layer. Um, but I think that that's something that's so interesting that that's now being brought into this conversation um, regarding global health and, and climate change. So it's just one of the first times I've heard this argument made. Yeah, and I think what's even more interesting, too, is, as as you're alluding to, is this shift in behavior. And we're also seeing at the same time, I mean, you can look back to September and what happened in New York City. You had over 40,000 people marching the streets for climate change, which really has never happened. Um, And not only it was in the United States, but it was all over the world. Uh, People taking a stand together and we're on this road to Paris and... I think there's this realization um, from young people to to all ages of something needs to be done now. Something isn't right. People are getting sick and things are changing. Um, so the linkages are starting to be made. And that's why this research and this data needs to happen as soon as possible. And also people need to take it seriously and realize that there is um, really a need for it. Um, people do care about their health and their money. So it is interesting when there is these linkages between health and economics or finance, because those are two things that people 
do really care about um, or will get them talking is their health or, or their money. So how can we incorporate um, health into this dialogue to kind of set up the framework for people, whether they're policymakers or individuals, um, to understand the need of how can they do their part to help mitigate climate change and by proxy uh, help their own health and the health of everyone else on the planet. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the questions I wanted to ask you was around some of the functional application of this research. You, you've mentioned things around urban planning to some degree, but how, how do we take this idea of making ourselves healthier while simultaneously tackling climate change and sort of apply that into functional application in the real world? Yeah. Um, so with regards to urban planning, a uh, big thing that we need to um, keep in mind is that in the future, I mean, in the near future, uh, the majority of the world's population is going to be in cities. There's going to be this massive rise of urbanization. And specifically in 2050, 70% of Chinese will live in cities with more than 1 million people. That's a lot of people in one area. So we also need to remember that when we are creating these new cities and you're seeing this mass migration of people to these cities for work and whatnot, the way we organize them to operate, if it's fossil fuel-based, you know, what are the roads going to be like? Is it going to be conducive for a lot of people to use automobiles? Will there be a public transport system? Um, how will people get fresh food? Um, these are the kind of things that need to be taken into consideration. At the same time, it brings up this argument about physical activity. Most people will tell you today, oh, you know, yes, of course, it's important to be physically active, to be healthy. The problem is a grand majority of people, specifically from developed countries, um, are not even meeting bare minimum requirements for this physical activity. And kind of as I talked about earlier, but another version of this double burden of health, um, we're seeing a lot of people who are malnourished. Uh, but malnourished in the sense it goes two ways. You can have too little or too much of a certain thing. Um, And so with that, um, that brings up kind of diet and now kind of bringing in health to climate change. um, We've heard before about the food and agriculture sector and the impact of diet on greenhouse uh, gas emissions. Um, So the more meat that's consumed, the more greenhouse gases are emitted um, into the air. So um, it does play a really big role, and it's all interlinked. So it goes from how our transport sector is operated to how our food sector is operated. So these all need to be taken into consideration Mm -hmm. when we're planning these cities. Um, And at the root of it being um, human health. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of obvious when you make the the linkage in your brain, but typically anything that's good for sort of human health and physical activity is almost directly related to being uh, beneficial in regards to climate change and the environment. If you're walking to work or you're cycling to work uh, or taking public transportation, you're directly removing your individual carbon emissions from um, the greater picture. And so it's it's so sort of another really impactful argument as to why urban planning and sort of intelligent city design is of such importance, um, not only in human health and happiness, but in tackling some of these major issues like climate change. Exactly. 
Um, Okay, so that's it for the questions that I had for you today, Ashley. Uh, With this being such a new field, one of the big uh, requests I would have of you is, is are there any great resources or or places that some of the listeners can go to if they're interested in learning more? Um, So how can people sort of educate themselves about this emerging field of study? Yeah, definitely. So actually, what's very exciting is as of this summer, for the first time ever, there's the new joint commission uh, from the World Health Organization and the World Meteorological Organization on climate change and human health. So bridging these two giants of international organization and actually setting up a joint task force. Um, and from there, they're going to be working on policies, but there's also going to be information uh, for the public as well to educate themselves on um, you know, what are these linkages? What are current doctors talking about? What are policymakers talking about? Um, so that's a really great place to start, and it's very exciting. So um, once their commission was um, announced this summer in August, there was also um, the first ever annual uh, conference on climate change and human health hosted by the World Health Organization. Um, and you can find on the World Health Organization website um, all the recordings of and videos of that conference as well. There were very interesting topics brought up, um, very similar to what we just talked about, from smart city planning to food and agriculture to transport um, to the economics. So really covering um, kind of the whole gamut of um, all these different factors that health can play a role into. That's great. And, and we'll have to have you back on a future show to hear some of the updates on how some of this new research and, and field of study is going. Awesome. Would love to. And it does give me some peace of mind that someone as intelligent as you is taking the time to uh, and focusing their career on tackling this issue. So uh, we wish you best of luck, Ashley. Thank you very much, Sean. Okay, take care. I'm excited to have an interview with Jonathan Banks, who's a researcher in geothermal energy at the University of Alberta. So rather than me give your introduction, can you give our audience a bit of an introduction to who Jonathan Banks is? Uh, sure. Um, like you said, I'm a researcher. I'm a research associate in Earth and, Environment, uh, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences here at yeah. the University of Alberta. Um, in the beginning of 2013, uh, the Alberta, Alberta government, through some private distributors of research money, founded a section in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences for geothermal science research in mostly in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I was I was recruited to be a research associate uh, within that framework. Cool. And since then, I've been doing research here in Alberta. And what were you doing before Alberta came calling? Uh, yeah, I was working at a pilot geothermal plant or a, an experimental geothermal plant uh, north of Berlin in Germany. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, welcome to Alberta. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited for this because we haven't actually done any um, programming around geothermal on the show so far. And so I was excited to bring you in just to give us a bit of an overview and a, a layman's uh, understanding of what geothermal energy is. So if you were explaining this to my grandma, how would you explain geothermal energy to someone who's not familiar with the subject? Okay. Well, thermal energy is commonly known as heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so geothermal energy is heat that is within the ground, within the earth. 
the Earth's core, for example, is over 6,000 degrees centigrade. It's hotter than the surface of the sun. Uh, most of the heat that is available to us here at the surface of the Earth is actually not coming from the Earth's core. It's coming from uh, radioactive decay of minerals or and elements within the Earth's crust, like potassium and uranium and lead and thorium and things like this. Uh, so when we talk about geothermal energy, we, we're talking about utilizing that heat for the production of electricity, first and foremost, and then also for direct use of the heat itself uh, through industrial heating, residential heating, uh, uh, process heating, and stuff like that. And what's the traditional breakdown in the utilization for heat into electricity versus just the heat itself? I don't have the number off okay. the top of my head, but it's the direct use of the heat is way larger than electricity production. And is that largely just because of the efficiency loss in the... Um, transfer that is part of it uh, yeah. most of it is actually because the the useful temperature of the heat itself can be much lower than the temperature required to make electricity so to make electricity with geothermal energy you really need water that's a good bit above 100 degrees mm -hmm. centigrade there are some places in the world where it's a little bit where you can do it a little bit colder than yeah. that but the heat itself uh, once it's above 30 degrees or 40 degrees centigrade it starts to have some pretty useful applications mm -hmm. and uh so in looking at, at geothermal, it's something that has been around for a, a long time. It seems like there's a renewed interest, and even to your example of why you're here, there's new research funding and there's new focus on geothermal. Why is that? Why has geothermal been sort of a, an emergent technology in the world of energy? Uh, well, first of all, you're correct in saying that geothermal energy has been around for a long time. Uh, native people of this continent have been using it for centuries, if not millennia, especially in the winter as a source of heat for their tribes. Mm -hmm. um, the first commercial electrical geothermal plant came online over 100 years ago in sure. Martorello, Italy, and that plant is still working. Huh. Uh, they're still making electricity. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the reasons why we're seeing sort of a resurgence of it now, especially in the last 10 years or so, uh, there, was a, there was a very large study put out by MIT in 2007 that talked about what's called EGS, or Enhanced Geothermal Systems. Mm -hmm. And this is basically updating the technology that's been used traditionally in geothermal systems to match what we're able to do as far as reservoir engineering. Mm -hmm. um, and so this has opened up a lot. A, a lot wider of a resource base than, than has been traditionally seen as a good geothermal resource base. Yeah. Uh, traditionally, you need to go to a place where there's a volcano or a spreading center or a tectonically active region where the heat flow near the surface of the earth is really high yeah. to be able to make electricity. But with new drilling technology, reservoir stimulation technology, production technology, uh, we're able to expand geothermics into fields where otherwise it wasn't seen as feasible, such as uh, the Western Canadian sedimentary basin here in Alberta. So you brought up some of those factors of, of geothermal um, resources, but maybe take us back one step and, and give us that overview. What makes something a good geothermal asset? Yeah, that's a good question. Basically, there are two things that make something a good geothermal asset. It has to have a high temperature in the reservoir, and there also has to be uh, enough of uh, a fluid flow rate to remove the heat from the subsurface. And, and what do you mean by fluid flow rate? Like groundwater or uh, aquifer water? Yeah. Well, yeah. there are basically two ways to do that as well. The traditional method is that there's water in the ground and it's hot. And if you can pump it up at a high enough rate, you can make electricity out of it. Mm -hmm. um, 
the, sort of the newer method of doing that is you can go to a place where there isn't a lot of water in the ground, pump it down, let it heat up, and then pump it back up. In both cases, the, the what's called the permeability of the rock or the rock's ability to transmit a fluid through its matrix yeah. needs to be high enough to get the required flow rate. And there's yeah, it seems like there's a lot of parallels to the emergence of fracking. That when you talk about reservoir stimulation and just even some of the mechanics and the processes, are there a lot of parallels? Is it something that there's a lot of corresponding technology? Yeah, reservoir stimulation is is code for fracking. Okay, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And fracking has, uh, fracking is also, if we can just use the yeah. common parlance, yeah. uh, fracking is something that has also been employed in the oil and gas industry for a long, long, long time mm -hmm. and has really only gotten sort of a bad reputation. I say bad, uh, you know, tongue in cheek a little bit. Yeah. Um, with the big natural gas surge in the United States and maybe some irresponsible companies were coming in and fracking close to a, a, a drinking water, groundwater source or whatnot. Are, are yeah. there some of the the environmental concerns around sort of the leaking of fracking fluid into aquifers uh, are there similar concerns in the world of geothermal or are are there fewer chemicals uh, it's basically the same process the yeah. the stimulation process so it's largely the same chemicals are used in geothermal systems uh, a lot of times a hydrocarbon producer will actually be subcontracted to come in and stimulate the reservoir because they have a lot of expertise in these areas mm -hmm. um, the risk of the fracking fluids getting out of pocket, so to speak, and then entering into a drinking water supply or something like that is a lot lower of a risk in a geothermal system because generally the geothermal systems are a lot deeper. Mm -hmm. And there may be several different cap rocks between where the geothermal fluids are being produced from and where, where people are getting their drinking water from. Cool. So, yeah, it's not... Um, the resistance to fracking is not something that we experience a lot in the geothermal community that's sort of seen as a side issue. Yeah, and geothermal is, is looped into the greater renewables umbrella because it's taking some of the naturally occurring energy in the earth and, and using it for human consumption. Um, but I, I want to sort of bring in the conversation of geothermal under the greater renewables umbrella. Uh, how does it stack up? What are the pros and cons of geothermal versus save for simplicity's sake, uh, wind and solar? Um, the upfront costs for geothermal energy are significantly higher than for other renewables, including solar, wind, and hydroelectric power. Yeah. That uh, has largely to do with exploration costs. It can be very expensive and time-consuming to get a good idea of what's happening three or four kilometers beneath our feet in the ground. Yeah. Whereas uh, you know, a solar resource base, for example, can be easily measured with a, you know some meters, some sensors stuck in the field somewhere. You can yeah. see how much sun you're getting, and you can predict this pretty accurately. Uh, there's a lot more variability in geothermal potentials over a given geographic area, and so exploration costs uh, can, be, can be quite high. Uh, that's one point of comparison. The flip side to that is, is that once a geothermal plant is up and running, uh, they're very inexpensive to operate. They require very little maintenance costs. Yeah. Um, and so there's a there's a trade-off there between upfront costs and long-term operating costs. And you don't, in solar and wind, you sort of have a 25-year time horizon of a effective project, whereas you, the the Italian example you bring up of a 100-year project, is that is that 
an anomaly? Is that an outlier? Or, or will geothermal plants, once operational, exist for multiple, multiple decades? If they're managed properly, they I, I, it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer to consider geothermal energy renewable. Mm-hmm. I know nobody can see the quotation marks I'm making yeah. my fingers here. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer to consider it renewable because once the heat is gone from the Earth, the heat is gone from the Earth. Yeah. And so we just need to look at Mars to look at a plant that's lost its, its active heat content. Yeah. Um, it is sustainable in the sense that you can operate a geothermal system in a steady state such that the heat won't be stripped out of it within the span of human civilizations. We're talking yeah. thousands or tens of thousands of years. And does that yeah. come down to a calculation of the radioactive decay? Uh, it comes down to a variety of calculations. The rate of radioactive care, the, the density or the concentration of radioactive elements within the reservoir is certainly a major factor to it. It really has... Um, Though that parameter contributes to the heat flow within mm-hmm. a reservoir, and that has to do with uh, the thermal conductivity of the rocks and the heat flow across the boundaries of the reservoir. Mm-hmm. So as you pump water up, you're stripping it of some of its heat content. Mm-hmm. You're injecting what's left of the heat content back into the ground, um, and then heat is coming in from around the reservoir to replenish the total heat supply in the reservoir. So it's a balancing act to run a system like that sustainably. A really good example of how that's gone awry and then been fixed is in the Geysers geothermal field near uh, San Francisco. Okay. Uh, The Geysers is the largest operating geothermal field in the world. It provides uh, Northern California from San Francisco to the Oregon border, over 60% of the electricity Hmm. that's there. So it's a huge resource. Um, Back in the late 70s and the early 80s, it was producing over a terawatt of energy. I'm sorry. Over a gigawatt. Yeah. yeah. Like a terawatt is <laughs> I'm going to take incredible. a step back. Right? Yeah, over a gigawatt of, of electricity, <laughs> 1.2 gigawatts it was producing at its peak, and they were just sucking the heat out of that thing like crazy until it dropped off to about half of its capacity. And they dropped it off deliberately to, to half its capacity. They wound it down to give it time to recharge. And now they have sustainable production. It's back up to around 750 megawatts. To jump in with a bit of context, 750 megawatts is a enough electricity to power about 725,000 homes or the equivalent of all of San Francisco's electricity needs. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing to keep the reservoir replenished with fluid, because some fluid gets consumed when it's produced, is they're injecting uh, um, treated wastewater from the Mm -hmm. local municipalities back into the reservoir and heating Mm -hmm. that up. So they've found a balance there. Which is a a functional use of a product that they might not be able to reuse for human consumption or for water consumption. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're not injecting all of their wastewater yeah. down no. there. Some of it goes to irrigation or whatnot. Yeah. But it is a functional use for what would otherwise be a waste product, yeah. Hmm. And and what are what are the, the major plants around the world? So you brought up the Geysers Project, but what are some of the other uh, applications that we're seeing um, for geothermal use on, on a macro scale? Uh, well, the sort of the flagship of geothermal energy in the world is Iceland, yeah. which has uh, a number of unique geologic factors that make it just a gold mine of geothermal energy. Yeah. And they get, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of their heat and electricity from geothermal sources. They operate the single largest geothermal plant. So not a field like in the geysers, but the single largest geothermal turbine, which is a couple hundred megawatts, is in Iceland. Um, also, Iceland's largest export are cucumbers and tomatoes mm-hmm. that are grown in geothermal-fueled greenhouses. So we would like yeah. to bring that technology here to Alberta. That yeah. would be amazing. Our food prices are pretty high up here. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, on the Iceland example. Um, 
one of the things we focus on so much at Student Energy is taking that global systems view of yeah. the, the energy system. And one of the proposals I saw recently was um, for Iceland to assume and, and take on more um, energy, like energy and electricity intensive manufacturing industries. So industries like steel that consume ungodly amounts of electricity to produce um, would be perfectly suited to housing themselves in Iceland where there there is available land, there's talented workforces, and, and the biggest one of the biggest costs of production is uh, in their electricity consumption. And so if you can, if we can house these huge energy sinks that uh, are sort of the that our global economies are totally dependent on next to these sorts of resources that's just a really efficient way of operating so just another sort of check mark in the in the to the benefit of what geothermal can bring um once those plants are operational yeah interesting yeah, yeah. yeah. um so i i want to switch gears a little bit we were we were talking before about some of the pros and cons um of geothermal uh, are there any other pros and cons that you think the the average person should be aware of in looking at geothermal as a potential source yeah there are two um, main pros associated with geothermal energy that other forms of renewable energy uh, or sustainable energy don't have one is that uh, geothermal energy is considered a baseload dispatchable energy mm -hmm. uh, that means that the the potential or the installed capacity of a geo plant, geothermal plant is what it is, and it doesn't vary according to the season or if it's windy today or not, or if yeah. it's cloudy. It just is what it is. That's what's meant by baseload energy. Dispatchable means that you can ramp up and down the production of any given geothermal plant. So a geothermal plant might have an, an installed capacity of 50 megawatts, and it can produce 50 megawatts. Yeah. Um, but if the, the grid doesn't need 50 megawatts at that particular time, it can be ramped down to 25 megawatts or whatever. So that's so baseload and dispatchable are two sort of buzzwords that are yeah. correctly associated with geothermal energy. And and I know this is something that you've talked about sort of personally to me outside of this interview. But uh, what is the potential for geothermal to be a storage resource? Is is there potential for geothermal to act uh, in any way, shape, or form as a storage asset? Yeah, well, so the Earth itself, especially the Earth's crust, has a really remarkable thermal insulating properties. Mm -hmm. So this is why a, a big use of uh, a big residential use of geothermics are these these ground source heat exchangers, where people basically just connect the air in their house to uh, uh, the ground, and that keeps it more insulated. It keeps the temperature of the air in your house from fluctuating so much. Yeah, and that's a big business. You can install a system like that on your house. You'll make your money back in five to seven years, and your heating bills will be $25 a month for the rest of your life, as long as the system's working. Yeah. Um, on a larger scale, we are looking at using those thermal insulating properties of the Earth to store solar heat, for example. So one of the big issues with solar energy is that it's not baseload, and it's not dispatchable. Yeah. You get it when the sun's shining, and then you don't get it, and there's issues with storage, you know, and... You can store solar energy for a long period of time, but it requires an enormous space. You know, you need yeah. a huge water tank to store it for any length of time. So one thing that we're looking at doing is using the, uh, is developing geothermal storage wells uh, to store solar heat. So when it's collecting the heat and the sun is shining, you can use some of that to make electricity, but you can also store the rest of it in the ground for a later day. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a, a uh, science fiction at the moment. It's, a, it's an experimental thing, but yeah. that's something we're developing. I also want to go back and just mention quickly yeah, the, the second advantage to geothermal over other forms of 
renewables or sustainable energies is that it has a very small footprint mm -hmm. uh, per megawatt hour. Geothermal energy has, by orders of magnitude, the smallest footprint of any renewable energy, including solar energy, which requires a huge field to mm -hmm. erect the solar panels, or wind, which also requires a huge field to spread the turbines out, yeah. and uh, even hydroelectric power, which is uh, where Canada gets most of its renewable energy and most of its energy, actually. Yeah. Um, has a huge footprint. If you consider, for example, in the Site C dam, they build this dam, it's going to flood many, many hundreds of thousands of hectares of land behind it, and that's now lost land. So a geothermal plant, the geothermal plant I was working at in Germany, uh, was smaller than a football field, much smaller than a football field. Yeah, yeah maybe half the size of a football field. So that's another advantage that has a small footprint. And so what are the limiting factors in the growth of geothermal? Because the the benefits that it have has, to your point of it being baseload and dispatchable, um, really long time horizons of operating efficiency, uh, there's a lot of pros in that in that column. And is it cost? Is it simply a cost decision that, that we're waiting on uh, before there's additional growth of the industry? Or are we at the start of a geothermal boom? Uh, it's really hard to say in Canada. Uh, Canada um, is the only developed nation on the so-called Ring of Fire, which is the yep. circumpacific area where there's a lot of active tectonics going on, that does not have a single megawatt of installed geothermal power, either for heat or electricity. Hmm. So, And the resource base is there. Geologically, especially Western Canada, is very similar to the United States. The United States is, by a long shot, the world's largest producer mm -hmm. of geothermal energy. So there are, there are a number of factors that dictate that. One is the, the hydrocarbon market in Canada uh, sort of, it doesn't really act as a deterrent, but it doesn't really act as a motivator mm -hmm. for finding cleaner forms of energy. Yeah. Um, that's one issue. Another issue is that because nobody's ever done it here in Canada, there's just yeah. um, people have cold feet. Yeah. You know, they don't, they don't really know the technologies out there. I can point to a number of, geothermal systems around the world in very similar environments to what's in Canada. Yeah. But people don't really know how much it's going to cost because the Canadian economy is unique. Access to good and service, goods and services in Canada is different than it is anywhere else. Yeah. And so it's difficult to, uh, it's difficult, for example, to get an insurance company to sign off on, on a venture because they don't know what their liability yeah. is. And there's no market precedent at all. Exactly. One of the jokes I've heard uh, when discussing the Canadian oil industry is that everybody wants to be the second customer, that a lot of the big companies always want to be the second person to do something. But yeah, no, yeah. There's no real benefit that anyone's uh, found <laughs> in being the first. This is a discussion that I've been been having with a business partner of mine because yeah. we're both really keen on getting in on Canada's first geothermal energy station, but we both also know that the first one isn't going to be nearly as profitable as the yeah. second one. <laughs> so what are we rushing into this for? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's the city. Are we sitting at the edge of a boom? It's hard to say. I mean, the yeah. the Alberta government did just invest a lot of money in developing. Yeah. But even energy. even outside of Canada, when yeah. you look at some of the other jurisdictions around the world, um, what does the global geothermal picture look like? And and we I've seen some of the the curves of solar adoption and wind adoption and sort of the increased capacity based on those technologies. Is it a similar hockey stick that we're looking at in geothermal, or, or is it still flatlined? Uh, it's growing yeah. uh, pretty fast, especially, I mean, the United States just invested some billions of dollars in geothermal yeah. energy development, and they're developing it. Uh, geothermal energy, for example, in Germany, uh, Germany is often pointed to as a, as a world leader in renewable energy, and yeah. that also includes geothermics in the area around Munich. There are many, uh, 10 or 15, I'm going to say off the top of my head, 
modular sized geothermal plants, three to five megawatt plants, but they're they're popping up everywhere around the city. Yeah. So they're really uh, making use of the base uh, in Mexico. Also, a huge geothermal resource. I know the Mexican government has been investing a lot of money in academics to develop it. Uh, Japan, Indonesia, I think I might have mentioned already. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's developing. Um, people are becoming aware of it. And also technology is advancing. Uh, this EGS technology where you know, you have a system that doesn't look like a geothermal system. You drill a well, you stimulate the reservoir, you inject fluid in it. Um, in Australia, they did a test of this in the Cooper Basin in Australia. It was called the Habanero test, which is yeah. appropriate. <laughs> um, you know, they wanted to run this plant for uh, 20 or 30 days to see if they could get it going. And they got it running for 180 days. Yeah. And they could have kept it going, and they shut it down because they couldn't find a buyer for the electricity. Yeah. Yeah, because the plant was out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So it is growing, um, and especially with this report that came out in 2007 uh, from MIT that spurned a lot of sort of auxiliary reports about the financing of geothermal yeah. systems. It's growing. It's not really growing as fast as we might like to see it growing, and there's yeah. some political and popular resistance to it, in, 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 uh, especially areas that are densely populated. There's fears of things like induced seismicity. Yeah. Um, but it's growing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and for any of our listeners or any of our students who are interested in geothermal, what are the frothy areas of the market that you think there's going to be really difficult challenges but also big opportunities uh, over the next sort of five to ten years? Like, What are those areas of the market that people should be paying attention to or, or where, where the market will be going in the next five to ten years, in your opinion? Um, in five to ten years, I expect to see growth uh, with similar technology as to what's being employed now. Okay. We're, we're basically just at the beginning of a new advance in geothermal technology. That's getting applied to mm-hmm. developing systems now. I think really uh, the the big boom in geothermal energy or where geothermal energy is going to be a major provincial or national scale power supplier is when we can develop cheaper and more effective deep drilling technology. because. Mm-hmm. Right now in Alberta, we can drill to two and a half or three kilometers, and it's pretty cost effective, and it, it can go pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And and we have world class drilling expertise here. Mm-hmm. But at three kilometers in Alberta, you're not really getting extremely hot water. We want to be able to get to eight kilometers, yeah, uh, where it's hot, you know, hot. <laughs> um, and but then you get into another issue, which is that you can't really inject water into the rocks that are found at eight kilometers beneath the surface of Alberta. So there's two issues here. There's the drilling technology, yeah. and then there's also the thermal transport technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that we're doing here at the University of Alberta in cooperation with Alberta Innovates is investigating the use of carbon dioxide to transport that thermal hmm. energy from deep in the subsurface. Well, that brings me to the end of the questions I wanted to ask you today. I I love that we got to do just sort of a a touch on 10 different areas in the world of geothermal. Uh, And it's awesome that people like you are devoting their time, effort, and energy into seeing the potential of this technology because uh, from every research report, every IPCC report we see, we're going to simultaneously need more capacity and cleaner capacity. And geothermal, if it hits the way it has the potential to, I think could be a huge um, boon to the environmental movement as well as the the movement around providing quality of life around the world. So I uh, just wanted to applaud you for the work and the research that you're doing. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. That brings us to an end of another episode of Energy Voices. 
Special thanks to Bullfrog Power for hosting another month of the show and visit studentlife.bullfrogpower.com for more information. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair with production assistance from Kaylee Taylor.